Remember when the movie version of V for Vendetta came out and people were acting like Guy Fox was some sort of symbol of freedom fighting? <laughs> when yeah. he was actually trying to replace Parliament with a Catholic theocracy? Remember, remember the 5th of November the way that we want you to. Welcome to Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Larry Womack. And I'm Rachel Stewart. And this episode is the conclusion of our story of the life of King James VI and I. In part one, James was born in the epicenter of the conflict between Protestants and Catholics for the soul and crown of Scotland and of England. He was kidnapped by a group of nobles who forced him to part with his love, the Duke of Lennox. But James has put that all behind him is eyeing the throne of England, and in order to get that, he's going to need to produce heirs. I'm sure that he will be able to perform his kingly duties with a woman. Yeah, because you, you can't do that with a duke. No matter how hard you try. Biographer Pauline Croft wrote that, quote, Throughout his youth, James showed little inclination for women and was praised for his chastity, unlike his royal ancestors who frequently sired bastards. <laughs> go, go figure, right? <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of a line from one of my favorite movies, but I'm a cheerleader. It's easy to be a prude when you're not attracted to him. Ooh, yeah. But to secure the English throne in particular, James really did need to produce heirs. So... He started looking for a wife, and sight unseen, sent for 14-year-old Anne of Denmark. Poor Anne of Denmark. Unless she has a carabiner <laughs> snapped to her corset. <laughs> I don't know if she knows what she's about to get herself into here. From here, a couple things happen. The first is that terrible storms delay her arrival after they were married by proxy. So he goes to get her to make like a romantic gesture, right? Again poet and terrible storms plagued him too because they're sailing the same place the captain of one of the ships claimed that a healer he and his wife had offended had conjured up the storms to kill him and under torture poor agnes samson made a bizarre confession in which she claimed that 200 witches including herself had sailed to a church on halloween night where they met the devil who bent over the pulpit and required each to kiss his bare buttocks in a sign of fealty. That was some good drugs that night. <laughs> Again, she was she was tortured. She, she was going to say whatever she thought she's, they wanted she's to hear. Gonna, yeah, exactly. She said that she and some other witches had baptized a cat, tied a dead man's bones to it, thrown it into the sea, thereby causing the storm that had plagued James. Which, you know, if she really did that, I'm glad she was executed for killing a cat, but I, I highly doubt that happened. Man alive. This is... <sighs> Continue. So truly the, the most unfortunate thing about James' reign, which I would say prevents me from being able to just call him outright kick-ass, is that after this, he got super into witch hunting. Mm. He wrote a popular pamphlet on it, which put forward many of the ideas that Shakespeare used in Macbeth. Which probably we could trace the lineage down to then also influencing what happened in their colonies a short time later, specifically in Salem. <sighs> yeah. And around 2,500 people were murdered after being charged with witchcraft. 
Thanks, James. Yeah, so that's not kick-ass. That's a, that's a crime against humanity. Some say that James's later writings stress the need for restraint and indicate he's no longer convinced that witchcraft is even real. And I see some reluctance in the excerpts I looked at for sure, but it's not really the sort of full-throated 180 you'd like to see on, again, a crime against humanity. I might have been wrong. Yeah, you know, maybe all those people we murdered were not (laughs) controlling the weather. Oops. The second thing that came immediately out of this marriage was the prevailing belief among many that James was not romantically interested in his wife. Shock, where did that come from? (laughs) Though he was by all accounts affectionate and good to her in the beginning, three years later, poems were being circulated that indicated that he preferred the company of men and his wife was still a virgin. Ooh, you gotta consummate that shit. mm, That said, maybe I'm looking at this very naively, but... It could be possible that a bisexual adult man wouldn't want to have sex with a 14-year-old girl and might want to wait a few years. I don't know that that's realistic for the time. I, I, I don't think that's realistic for the time whatsoever. I think we're dealing with a time period where as soon as you were sexually mature, which happens you know, in adolescence, you're ready to go. So I don't think that's going to be a thing at all. However, their relationship seems to have started out pretty nicely. They would dress in costumes and go to parties together. Well, yeah, it was his beard, right? Mm. Like, I won't use the term because it's derogatory, but it rhymes with hag. The best gays have them. Mm. So, you know. But they quickly drifted apart. And in 1597, he wrote that marriage could be, quote, the greatest misery that can come to man. Wow. That honeymoon period really ended, didn't it? (laughs) It did. Um, Both were accused of infidelities, though he didn't seem to care much. He was said to have one female mistress, Anne Murray, not the Canadian singer. Not the singer. (laughs) This is so. There's an unreleased episode where there's another Anne Murray that we (laughs) that we had a great deal of fun talking about. One of these days, we will. We will bring up the OG Anne Murray reference. (laughs) There are those who think that this was a rumor he intentionally started to make it seem as if he was interested in women. And he did have a long succession of male lovers, both casual and serious, which we shall discuss in more detail soon. But honestly, their relationship seems pretty hilarious and somehow both aggressively domestic and totally surreal, like some sort of batshit sitcom. For example, James once fired some of her staff over a conspiracy. She refused to get out of bed, so he hired a famous acrobat to come perform for her. Was that supposed to get her out of bed? Maybe she had to get out of bed to see the acrobat. Maybe it didn't happen in the bedroom. Oh, I get it. It's like a ruse. Like, hey, come check out this mime that I hired for you. (laughs) Once, in what I hope was a terrible accident, she shot and killed his favorite dog. Oh, my God. Yeah, he did not respond well to that. Then he felt bad. So, again, I I assume it was an accident. And he sent her a diamond to make up. She was not happy that he had sent their children off to be educated at the same estate that he was. And at some point early in the marriage, she converted to Catholicism. Oh, girl. <laughs> right. You can't imagine a better way to complicate his rule Or harm his chances at getting Elizabeth's crown, right? Because his kids could be Catholic. 
Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Yeah, eventually they settled into a sort of long-distance friendship where they seemed to really like each other, but they didn't live together for the last 12 years of Anne's life, and she died young at age 44. Yikes. They were married a long time. That was like 30 years, though. Yeah. Wow. Um, summing it up, Anne's chaplain wrote, quote, The king himself was a very chaste man, and there was little in the queen to make him uxorous. Yet they did love as well as a man and wife could do, not conversing together. They loved each other as much as they could for two people who couldn't stand each other. <laughs> they don't speak, but they, there's a real fondness there. <laughs> I mean, he does he does seem to have, if not loved, really liked her, but their relationship was not close. Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, Larry, could you imagine if you had to be married to me for 30 years? It would probably go south. <laughs> probably. Real, real quick. But here's the thing. I feel like you and I would have enough of an arrangement that you go do whomever you want to do and I will do whomever I want to do. And I mean, the kids thing, that makes sense. So, you know, I think we could have made it work. They did have a number of children, though, or she did anyway. I mean, again, she was believed to have other lovers as well. In 1594, Anne gave birth to their first child, Henry Frederick, and she would have six more, although only three would survive to adulthood, one just barely, and we'll discuss that soon. But James's personal life was mostly taken up by his relationships with male favorites. In 1603, Elizabeth died and left James the throne of England as well. That's why he's James VI and James I. Right. Or as one popular epigraph that circulated at the time said, Elizabeth was king, now James is queen. <laughs> Honestly, that does actually feel real on the nose. <laughs> right. James had become involved with a new page at court, Richard Preston, who traveled with him to London and was knighted at the king's coronation in a, by that time, antiquated ceremony that included the bathing of the new knight. <laughs> he got to bathe Sir Dick. <laughs> this is even weirder when you consider that the coronation was very small because there was a really bad outbreak of the plague at the time. Oh, man. I just keep thinking these are the OG oppressors and they're so dumb. <laughs> Anne, in fact, refused to take communion at the coronation the way the Anglicans did it, though I can't tell if that was on religious or sanitation grounds. I mean, honestly. Yeah. James bestowed upon Preston a succession of titles, culminating in his being named the first Earl of Desmond. It sounds gay. <laughs> right? That just sounds gay. I'm sorry. However, in 1608, James met Robert Carr, who became his new favorite. Mm, bye, Dick. And, <laughs> and in 1614, he had Preston married off. Aww. Preston remained in James' life, though, mostly from a distance as the years went on. Robert Carr was another page. He was 21. He was handsome and of contested intelligence. Some people say he was very smart. Others say not so much. He got himself a little twink himbo. Yeah. In a jousting match, he was knocked off his horse and broke his leg. James allegedly ran out onto the field and insisted that he be cared for by the royal physicians. 
from there, classic Florence Nightingale syndrome. Although after our Florence Nightingale episode, I have no idea where that syndrome got its name. Mm. The king would visit regularly and dote on him and that blossomed into something more. Thomas Howard, the first Earl of Suffolk, wrote that, quote, the king, feeling a natural interest in him, visited him and fell in love with his beauty. The presents he received to win the king's favor had made his fortune. His royal lover had made him Earl of Rochester and Knight of the Garter. Belt. <laughs> when James fell ill with gout, Carr devotedly attended his bedside as well. A courtier at the time wrote, quote, The prince constantly leaneth on his arm, pinches his cheek, smooths his ruffled garment. Carr hath all favors. The king teacheth him Latin every morning. I tell you, the Scottish lad is straight-limbed, well-favored, strong-shouldered, and smooth-faced. Twink. Yeah. Queen Anne and Prince Henry, who was now 18, really disapproved of the relationship. Henry wasn't on great terms with James to begin with due to political differences and Henry's kind of militant Protestantism. Remember, James really tries to not alienate the Catholics too much. Mm -hmm. But when Henry died suddenly... James was, of course, devastated. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's firstborn, right? His firstborn, and he was 18 years old. Was it an explosion? <laughs> so that's true. His Catholic mother may not have appreciated that militant Protestantism. <laughs> she's. Oh, God. She's gunning for the throne. <laughs> so James and Carr slash Rochester remained an item for about seven years, until around 1614, when James was around 48 years old. Then what did he age out? Carr wanted to marry Frances Howard, who was already married. He persuaded James to make sure she was able to divorce her husband. He did this by sort of stacking the panel with friendly bishops. She and her husband had been married at ages 13 and 14, and allegedly never consummated her marriage. Basically, she told them her husband couldn't perform. Mm-hmm. Which is funny considering who she's moving on to. Mm -hmm. um, Rochester and James fell out. You get the sense that James expected their relationship to continue. He will later marry off an even more important love interest while fully continuing their relationship. And Carr did not. James wrote to Carr at the time that he had been, quote, "...withdrawing yourself from lying in my chamber, notwithstanding my many hundred times earnest soliciting you to the contrary." He sounds needy. Yeah. And he complained that Carr had spoken to James, quote, more sharply and bitterly than ever my master Buchanan durst do. And remember, Buchanan was old and mean. Wow. So right around the same time, Francis Howard, the new wife, poisoned Sir Thomas Overbury, a friend of Carr's who didn't like her. And when she confessed, she implicated her new husband as well. They were both sentenced to death, but James commuted their sentence and eventually sent them off to live in the country to stay out of the way, basically. That's rough trade. Okay. Yeah, that's... I mean, at least they got spared, I guess. Yeah. Plot twist, though. Mm. Was it Carr or James who cooled their relationship by becoming involved with someone else. Mm. I ask because in 1614, just when the relationship with Carr was falling apart and James was having Preston married off, James met Georges Vier and mm, another Frenchman, you'll notice. Mm -hmm. 
and I might be mispronouncing that. My French is terrible. There are topics I want to do but just have not done because my French is so terrible. I'll be like, that's great. I don't want to say her name. (laughs) (laughs) VA was a knight's son. He was smart, handsome, charming. And he, more than the other two, seemed to fit the type that Lennox had been. Right down to being French. Mm-hmm. It is believed that James and V.A. first consummated their relationship at Farnham Castle in August of 1615. In letters, V.A. refers to himself as James's slave and dog. Oh. These two ideas meet when, in one letter, V.A. wonders, quote, Whether you loved me now better than at the time which I shall never forget at Farnham, where the bed's head could not be found between the master and his dog. Wow. I really wish you Um, all could see Rachel's face. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I honestly was not thinking that James was a top, but I guess I have been proven wrong in my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Same, actually. Their love letters are numerous and intense. In one, James writes, quote, I desire only to live in the world for your sake. And I had rather live banished in any part of the world with you than live a sorrowful widow life without you. God bless you, my sweet child and wife, and grant that ye may ever be a comfort to your dear dad and husband. Whoa, that's that's some language choice there. So dog slave wife, he is the master king husband. He would be a widow without him, though. Slash father. Mm hmm. And how old is he right now? Not not James, George. VA is in his mid to late 20s, and James is in his late 40s, early 50s. So it's a sugar daddy Ken with earring magic Ken. I get it. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I just am, am interpreting this through my set of rainbow colored lenses, but King James sounds like he was a giant homosexual. I mean, yeah. If the poetry didn't give it away and the heart... These letters are pretty intense, and that's not the only time that James refers to them in husband and wife terms, or in father-son terms, or the only time that VA refers to them as master and slave or dog. Yeah, that's, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a page out of Larry's book here and say that these letters are horny. And they're a little BDSM-y, right? Oh, yes, that was not. I don't think that was even in question when you start to refer to yourself as the loyal dog. <laughs> you better be careful, though, because I don't know. Is Anne still alive? Because, you know, that, that that'll get him shot. Interestingly, Anne liked this one. The two became friends. And some people think in some letters she is encouraging their relationship. Like she asks him to remain ever true to her husband. But that could just be sort of king talk, too. So who knows? Spoken like a true metamor. James knights VA, then makes him the first commoner in over a century to become a duke. The Duke of Buckingham, no less. So people hereafter will refer to him as Buckingham. More like the Duke of Fuckingham. (laughs) I'm really glad you said that because their relationship was pretty broadly known. And Théophile de Vieux, the poet and dramatist, wrote, Apollo with his songs debauched young Hyacinthus, just as Corydon fucked Amentus, so Caesar did not spurn boys. One man fucks Monsieur Legrand de Bellegarde, who, as an aside, was a friend of Villiers, 
another fucks the Comte de Teneur, and it is well known that the King of England fucks the Duke of Buckingham. Mm-hmm. Mm. Another observer, Francis Osborne, wrote of James and the new Duke, quote, In wanton looks and wanton gestures they exceeded any part of womankind. The kissing them after so lascivious a mode in public, and upon the theatre, as it were, of the world prompted many to imagine some things done in the dressing room that exceeded my expression no less than they do my experience. Ah, God. They were horny for each other. They were, again with the PDA, James seems to have been really big on PDA. Well, yeah, he was the king. Like, Mm -hmm. he... Who's going to, what's going to happen? Spoilers. Mm. This all led to a debate in Privy Council about whether it was appropriate for the King of England and Scotland to be carrying on a big gay love affair. Fair. Sir John Oglander testified, quote, The king is wondrous passionate, a lover of his favorites beyond the love of men to women. He is the chastest prince for women that ever was, for he would often swear that he never kissed any other woman than his own queen. And even that's up for debate. (laughs) I never yet saw any fond husband make so much or so great dalliance over his beautiful spouse as I have seen King James over his favorites, especially Buckingham. Mm. Old Bucky. Mm. These debates went on for about five years with James rule over England constantly under threat in a way that he was unused to in Scotland. Their relationship with Buckingham was brought up a lot, but really it was a lot of things, including the fact that James, while he'd been very good at keeping Scotland under his control, wasn't fully prepared for the larger and more complicated England, where he had to share a lot of the power with Parliament. Mm-hmm. Of his relationship with Buckingham, James told the Privy Council in 1617, quote, I, James, am neither a god nor an angel, but a man like any other. You may be sure that I love the Earl of Buckingham more than anyone else, and more than you who are here assembled. I wish to speak in my own behalf and not to have it thought to be a defect. For Jesus Christ did the same, and therefore I cannot be blamed. Christ had John, and I have George. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. I don't. That's awkward. It's I I don't know if he was trying to say, like, their relationship was chaste or if he was trying to to call Jesus a big homo. I don't I don't know for sure. It kind of leans towards the latter, though, because it's it feels a lot like Alexander the Great's proclamation that he and Hephaestion were just like Achilles and Patroclus, except this makes certain Christian heads explode, I'm sure. Mm. I mean, I'm, I mean, just to show the influence of sort of Christianity on just life and culture, I'm squirming just hearing that proclamation because, you know, you bring that up at dinner on Christmas Eve <laughs> the dude whose name was on the bible (laughs) jesus and paul were banging oh oh Oh, oh. god oh god just one more aside about this relationship james's favorite royal residence apathor paul was restored over the course of a few years starting in 2004 they find his sex dungeon I mean, maybe, because during the restoration, workers uncovered a secret passage connecting James's bedchamber to the Duke of Buckingham's. Such a cliche. I mean, it's possible that this was a security thing, especially since they seem to be pretty open about their relationship. But 
I don't, I don't know, man. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. It certainly is cool, though. Fun feature. I want a secret passage. But back to the boring stuff that isn't about gay sex. Keep in mind that at this point, James is king of both Scotland and England, which is why, again, he's known as James VI and the First. He only visits Scotland once after leaving it for England. And James is really challenged with having to unite two kingdoms and the two major branches of Christianity, along with all of the factions within the two. He puts Scots and Englishmen together on his privy council. He changed his title, as well as that of his successors, to the King of Great Britain to reflect the new kingdom. And that has stuck and will until whenever Scotland is able to Brexit itself from the UK. He had inherited two wars, a very costly and damaging 20-year war with Spain, and another with Ireland. He put a stop to those pretty quickly. He more or less won in Ireland and quickly signed the Treaty of London with Spain. So in one year, he ended two wars. And for better and worse, it was, of course, during his reign that Jamestown, the first permanent English colony in the Americas, was founded. Yikes. So he, he did some really important stuff as well, right? But there was also a lot of infighting, especially in the first few years of his reign. The Christians were really fighting amongst themselves, and it wasn't just Catholic versus Protestant. On the Protestant side, you had the Anglican slash mainstream Episcopalian, Calvinist, and Puritan factions all fighting over scripture. On the Catholic side, the Jesuits and sort of secular-leaning priests were warring with one another. The Jesuits wanted to undo the Reformation and get rid of all these Protestants. This led to several plots involving the kidnapping and or murder of James. There was the by-plot, the main plot, and of course, the gunpowder plot. So all these Catholic murder-slash-kidnapping-slash-blowing-up-parliament plots led James to force Catholics to sign an oath of allegiance to announce which side they were on. The murder-me side or the chill-with-me side. And uh, that wasn't great for relations there. No. And in order to sort of heal Protestant divisions caused by the Geneva edition of the Bible, which was sort of the home version that people read privately and included these big marginal notes on the meaning of passages and translations, some of which challenged the authority of the monarchy, by the way, James commissioned the King James version of the Bible. Its goal, basically, was to work for both Puritans and mainstream Protestants. These people were arguing about things like whether or not wedding rings should be allowed, and if the crucifix was too Catholic for Protestant churches. So, James's solution is, look, we're going to put six groups comprised of about 50 of the best scholars in the country on this, and they're going to faithfully translate for both content and style. Except for the names because nobody wants to read Fear God, where they used to see Timothy, even though those were the sorts of names Puritans were giving their kids at the time. That rule did also extend to a few things Puritans had a point about, though, like saying priest when the more accurate translation would have been elder. Mm -hmm. And they were only to use marginal notes when absolutely necessary, because a word or term had no real equivalent in English. Mm -hmm. He had this commissioned in roughly the first year of his joint reign. It was finished and published seven years later in 1611, and it exploded in popularity in the 1640s when people got real sick of the Puritans and didn't want anything to do with their bullshit 
or the Geneva Bible that they used. Ship them to the colonies. Yeah, that's going to work out for everyone. (laughs) Well, the King James Version is still the most widely used Bible today, with a little over 30% of Christians still using it. One in three of you are reading a Bible that occurred by some dude who called his husband his dog wife. (laughs) Not... I think we're mixing some metaphors, but yes, basically. It should be noted that more ancient manuscripts have been discovered since, so it's no longer considered the best translation. And just as an aside, this impacts some stuff that is actually pretty important to Christian mythology, like virgin having previously been used where young woman seems to have been more accurate. What's the problem? Those two are the exact same thing. So I don't I don't know why you're making such a big deal of this, Larry. They that's should not, be. <laughs> that, <laughs> well, that's exactly why they probably did it. What? Mm. Young woman? Virgin? Same thing. As for more practical matters of government, Buckingham was personally liked, but his influence in the government was probably inappropriately outsized. He worked very closely with Sir Francis Bacon to essentially control the government, moving it away from both James and his promised vision. It seems like the two made some strides toward reining in out-of-control spending and corruption like the selling of offices. Previous favorites had taken advantage of this corruption, and it all kind of snowballed over the years. Still, they needed money, so James asked Parliament to raise taxes. Mm -hmm. Parliament declined. He dissolved Parliament, but that didn't help his problems at all. There was also the ongoing threat of war. James avoided another war with Spain, and he managed pretty shrewdly to keep his kingdom out of the Thirty Years' War, which engulfed most of Europe and killed between four and eight million people by most estimates. Good job, James. And this was not easy politically or personally. I guess we haven't really gone into these details, but his son-in-law was being targeted in this war, so he had to find ways of supporting and, and helping to protect him without dragging England and Scotland into the war. And he created this sweet Bible that didn't cause anybody any problems. (laughs) It's true. It solved all the problems, all of the divisions. Good job, James. He called Parliament back. They clashed over his pro-peace view. He became outraged that they were overstepping, as international relations really was under the Crown's purview. And the tensions just escalated until they were basically out of control. Parliament demanded that James's son marry a Protestant, but James thought it was in the best interest of peace for him to marry a Spanish princess. The prince also seemed to just want to marry her. Buckingham went behind Parliament's back to go off to Spain and secure the match, and in the middle of all this, James died, age 58, of dysentery, with a lot of work still to be done. Where was Florence Nightingale when you needed her? (laughs) You know what? I mean, Anne died pretty young. She died sometime before this. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe if he had not taken communion. (laughs) Okay, so James has now died. He has died. And of course, all of this would lead to civil war under his son, Charles I, who was decapitated by Parliament. Yikes. And this really colored James' legacy for a long time. People didn't really see him as the guy who staved off this inevitable horror so much as someone who didn't stop it. He's never been seen as a full James Buchanan type, but it's the same sort of deal. 
Buchanan was also unfortunately likely queer, but we're not claiming him, though. Unlike in Buchanan's case, however, James's reputation is now pretty good. He sometimes is ranked as one of the best monarchs in British history, usually near the bottom of the top 10, but keep in mind there have been 63. And the main reason cited isn't the Bible or the unification of England and Scotland, but keeping the kingdom out of the Thirty Years' War, which again killed millions. I mean, yeah, that is that is admirable to be like, you know, I don't think we necessarily need to be a part of this. That's good for him, you know. Yeah, it's great. It's a little hard to reconcile this older, peace-minded James with the guy who was like, kill all the witches, find him, kill him. He was young and... You know, in youth, we do foolish things like unduly persecute a group of people, mostly women, for believing that they controlled the weather and baptized cats. I once dyed my hair in patches of purple and red. James killed a bunch of witches. We all go through that phase as young queers. I mean, Larry, you've known me for a long time. You've seen some of the questionable relationship decisions I've made. (laughs) Some of us do that. Some of us kill witches. You know, who are we to judge? I I don't know that we can invoke non-judgment when it comes to witch trials. Mm Mm-hmm. So prior to his death, James sold the property that Buckingham's London house was on on the condition that he be able to name the streets. They are named George Court, VA Street, Duke Street, and Buckingham Street. All of them named after his last favorite, the one he called his wife. Wow. James is entombed at Westminster Abbey between VA slash Buckingham and the son of Esme Stewart slash Lennon. That's so gay. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So this is a, a complicated, complicated legacy, right? I found myself having a lot more sympathy and warm feelings toward King James than I was expecting going into this. But I kept getting brought back to everything that's wrong with the monarchy and colonization. There were very good things that he did, like keeping them out of the Thirty Years' War, very bad things that he did, like hunting witches, and then some things that he did with good intentions that probably didn't always work out the way that he had hoped, Yeah, I mean, as they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think what's really kind of ironic is he he did this to try to bring a little bit of peace and continuity into all of the warring factions of religions in the area and wound up commissioning a, a piece of work that has really sown a lot more division since it was produced. Yeah. I mean, who can say if it was less or more than the Geneva Bible? I I suspect probably less division, but it's religion. People are always going to find reasons to differ and argue and kill each other. The irony of Mm. this guy who is so gay and the origin for such black and white justification of our discrimination and marginalization today. If it had been a straight person sponsoring the Bible, there still would have been a shit ton of hypocrisy in what is left, right? Because the morality of real lived lives has never fully matched this. And 
Keep in mind the most recent writings that they were translating again were like a thousand years old. And many of them were much older. And they were already ignoring a lot of stuff in them. I get how he could look at this and think, well, one, he can't really change anything because he's trying to do a faithful translation. And two, thinking it's not that big a deal because the things that straight people were doing are getting condemned left and right in it, too. It's just that now we are in this environment where they've said, oh, well, that stuff's silly. That doesn't matter. But some people are still saying, but the stuff about gay people isn't silly and it does matter. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, it's the picking and choosing. And, you know, and this is, goes into one of my biggest sorts of issues with Christianity in particular and just organized religion in general is I'm I'm totally happy if it's something that gets you through the night, but we have a long history of this being used to create law and to create the conditions under which a lot of people who don't adhere to that uh, get get treated. I don't have a problem with people having religion. Religion is our oldest form of cultural identity. I understand the importance of it. Where I have a problem with it is when somebody's beliefs that get them through the night then get used as a way to punish me and to lessen my quality of life. Using a a text that relies very heavily on metaphor and parable as something for codified law, there are very real consequences for people like you and I that James never actually had to suffer because he was the monarch. Another thing I think is really interesting is the context in which this is occurring. And I think the context is more queer than we generally accept. People are recognizing what's going on. They're writing one another about it. They're not putting him on trial for it, although they did debate it in the Privy Council for five years. Also, when you look at the art and literature of the time, you see Christopher Marlowe opening up Dido with Ganymede on Jupiter's lap. You see a lot of queer stuff going on in Shakespeare. It doesn't seem to be condoned or certainly encouraged, but it also doesn't feel as verboten as we seem to assume. Right. It also shows you the framing of history. We hear sort of this like, oh, well, homosexuality is relatively new or it is not something that we've been doing forever and that seems more like a suppression of the actual truth of history than it is actual reality and and we talked about this last week with nancy garden well if we just pretend like it doesn't exist it'll stop existing and we see over and over and over again that if you just start to scratch the actual surface of the history that they try to spoon feed us or force feed us, we start to see that there have always been gay people, that oftentimes some of the biggest key players within things like religion or colonization are people who are gay, or we have, you know, instances of people in gay relationships or in mixed race relationships. To me, it shows much more of a disintegration of the narrative that's trying to be pushed than it is of us being like, oh, wow, I didn't realize people were so gay back then. 
It is, mm. people have always been this gay. It just happens to be that we had this narrative of like, no, they were all good Christians. And then Satan tempted the gays to like ask for rights. Yeah. Also, I found it weirdly relatable how sort of modern the relationship seemed to be. And by that, I mean, he had two really, really significant relationships, though one, he was kind of a dumb teenager, but another that continued to the end of his life. He had two sort of medium relationships that are pretty well documented and people know about. And then he also had a number of dalliances. And that that sort of feels like a human's romantic life to me, right? Right. Like, yeah. I found myself seeing a historical figure as more of a real person looking at him through that lens. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we can actually imbue somebody with the humanity that they actually had, we start to see that people are much more nuanced than we oftentimes give them credit for on it being more modern. You know, it's not so much modern as it is very human relationships. We are at minimum serial monogamous creatures. And, And we are, you know, as much as it gets people all riled up, like we are animals and that's not in the sense of like uncivilized. That's in the sense of like we are of this world. We are living, breathing organisms, and that can absolutely mean that, you know, we are not necessarily maybe supposed to be with one person. Yeah, sometimes the nobles force your guy to leave town, or sometimes your boyfriend gets married to a woman who gets him sent away for murder. Like, (laughs) not every relationship (laughs) is going to last forever. They're not all going to last forever. The reasons why we get married, which is a very human thing, you know, is not always for love. When you look at something like him and Anne, his wife, they obviously had a very profound love for one another. Was it romantic? Probably not. Was it sexual? Only because it had to be. And so more so than anything, I think that this shows sort of, again, ironically, what he was trying to argue about, which is let's, let's not necessarily get bogged down in the details, right? He, he tries to say, let's just create one set of details within the Bible, right? We're fighting about the wrong things. We don't need to get into a war about this. We've got other stuff that we have going on. And, and frankly, you know, it doesn't really matter who I consider my wife. If it is the person I am married to or this person whom I call my wife and he calls me master. And I mean, that's all. You know what? Every relationship is different. (laughs) (laughs) They get get to do whatever they want. Right. Um, But we see that in the 1500s and the 1600s, we do have the same sorts of dynamics that we have throughout history. And to to think that we've invented this is so narrow-minded and when we get into these arguments about transgender is new or you know that non-monogamy is new or homosexuality is new that is that is balderdash that is poppycock those are not true things to suppress history so that we can push a specific narrative so that people will buy in to specific beliefs and perpetuate those 
Rachel, I will ask you to refrain from using words like balderdash and poppycock. This is a family <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I think that's the cleanest I've ever been. <laughs> it's not nearly as profound as anything else that we've talked about. But the limits of royal power was super interesting to me because you had people telling Mary, no, you can't have your kid back. You had... James being beaten as a child by a commoner. You had Elizabeth running into challenges from Parliament all the time. You had James running into challenges from Parliament all the time. And then you have James's son getting beheaded by maybe not all of Parliament, but a faction of Parliament. It's kind of interesting that this idea of ruling by consent is also not as new or as unique as maybe we also assume. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one thing we could take from this is that the monarchy has been more of a symbolic figurehead position than we've thought of for a long time now. Mm -hmm. Like it, It seems like it's been several hundred years before there really was the genuine belief that this person truly is direct line to God. Well, thank you, Rachel, so much for bearing with me through another multi-part episode of Kick-Ass Queers, our very own Doctor Who Christmas special. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this, please rate, review, and share this with all of your friends. Certainly play it loudly in front of your family before Christmas dinner. You can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Deezer, and other platforms, as well as at kickassqueers.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at KickAssQueerCast. Thank you all. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season and we'll be coming back to you next year with a whole new batch of Kick-Ass Queers. Until then, whether you are debauching young Hyacinthus or fucking the Duke of Buckingham, while you're at it, kick some ass. They originally wanted James Whale to do the sequel to Dracula. Okay. And he really didn't want to do it. So he kept turning in scripts that were like super offensive. I've read one of them and it opens with the brides of Dracula, those three women kind of writhing wherever. And Dracula comes in and he's got this little bag that's squirming like there's a baby in the little bag, right? Okay. And he throws it on the ground and they descend upon it and just start eating it. That is how badly he did not want to make that movie. I, I don't know what this says about me. I should maybe check my temperature. Maybe I'm getting into a fever dream again here, but that doesn't sound that terrible. They fully eat a baby in the first scene. You know what? Set the tone. <laughs> Set the tone. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>